This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Scott. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas De Quincey. Section 15. Dinner, Real and Reputed. Part 2. These are the anchors by which man rides into that billowy ocean between morning and night. The first anchor, viz., breakfast, having given way in Rome, the more needed there is that he should pull up by the second. And this is often reputed to be dinner, as your dictionary, good reader, translated breakfast by that vain word, gentaculum. So doubtless it will translate dinner, by that still veneer word, prandium. Sincerely we hope that your own dinner on this day, and through all time coming, may have a better root in fact and substance than this most visionary of all baseless things, the Roman prandium, of which we shall presently show that the most approved translation is moonshine. Reader, we are not jesting here. In the very spirit of serious truth, we assure you that the delusion about, quote, gentaculum is even extended by this other delusion about, quote, prandium. Salmasius himself, for whom a natural prejudice of place and time partially obscured the truth, admits, however, that prandium was a meal which the ancients rarely took. His very words are, quote, Rero prandibat pateres. Now judge for yourself of the good sense which is shown in translating the word dinner, which must of necessity mean the chief meal, a Roman word which represents a fancy meal, a meal of caprice, a meal which few people took. At this moment, what is the single point of agreement between the noon meal of the English laborer and the evening meal of the English gentleman? What is the single circumstance common to both, which causes us to denominate them by the common name of dinner? It is that in both we recognize the principal meal of the day the meal upon which is thrown the onus of the day's support. In everything else, they are as wide asunder as the poles. But they agree in this one point of their function. Is it credible that to represent such a meal amongst ourselves, we select a Roman word so notoriously expressing a mere shadow, a pure apology, that very few people ever tasted it? Nobody sate down to it, not many washed their hands after it, and gradually the very name of it became interchangeable with one another, implying the slightest possible act of trying or sipping. Quote, Post Laurationum, sign, mensa, prandium, end quote, says Seneca, quote, Post quad non, sought, lavande, Manus, end quote. This is, quote, after bathing, I take a prandium without sitting down to the table, 
and such a prandium as being after itself, no need of washing the hands, end quote. No moonshine as little soils the hands as it oppresses the stomach. Reader, we as well as Pliny have an uncle, an East Indian uncle. Doubtless you have such an uncle. Everybody has an Indian uncle. Generally, such a person is, quote, rather yellow, rather yellow, end quote. Note, to quote Canning versus Lord Dunham, that is the chief fault with his physics. But, as to his morals, he is universally a man of princely aspirations and habits. He is not so orientally rich as he is reputed, but he is always orientally munificent. Call upon him at any hour from two to five. He insists on your taking tiffin. And such a tiffin. The English corresponding term is luncheon. But how meager a shadow is the European meal to its glowing Asiatic cousin. Still gloriously, as tiffin shines, does anybody imagine that it is a vicarious dinner, or even meant to be the substitute of dinner? Wait till eight, and you will have your eyes opened on that subject. So of the Roman, Prandium, had it been as luxurious as it was simple, still it was always viewed as something meant only to stay the stomach, as a prologue to something beyond. The Prandium was far enough from giving the feeblest idea of the English luncheon, yet it stood in the same relation to the Roman day. Now, to Englishmen, the meal scarcely exists, and were it not for women, whose delicacy of organization does not allow them to fast so long as men, would probably be abolished. It is singular in this, as in other points, how nearly England and ancient Rome approximate. We all know how hard it is to tempt a man generally into spoiling his appetite by eating before dinner, the same dislike of violating what they call the integrity of the appetite. Note, integrum femem, existed at Rome. Every man who knows anything of Latin critically sees the connection of the word integer with in and tetagai. Integer means what is intact unviolated by touch. Cicero, when protesting against spoiling his appetite for dinner by tasting anything beforehand, says, Integrum famem ad coenum afferam. I shall bring to dinner an appetite untampered with. Nay, so much stress did the Romans lay on maintaining this primitive state of appetite undisturbed, that any prelusions with either genticulum, or prandium, were said, by a very strong phrase indeed, pulere femem, to pollute the sanctity of the appetite. The appetite was regarded as a holy vestal flame, soaring upwards towards dinner throughout the day. If undebauched, it tended to its natural consummation in coena, expired like a phoenix to rise again out of its own ashes. On this theory, 
to which language had accommodated itself, the two preclusive meals of nine o'clock a.m. and of one p.m., so far from being ratified by the public sense and adopted into the economy of the day, were regarded gloomily as gross irregularities, enormities, debauchers of the natural instinct, and, in so far as they thwarted that instinct, lessened it, or depraved it, were universally held to be full of pollution, and finally, too, profane, a motion of nature. Such was the language. But we guess what is passing in the reader's mind. He thinks that all this proves the prandium to have been a meal of little account, and in very many cases absolutely unknown. But still he thinks all this might happen to the English dinner. That might be neglected. Supper might be generally preferred, and nevertheless dinner would be as truly entitled to the name of dinner as before. Many a student neglects his dinner. Enthusiasm in any pursuit must often have extinguished appetite for all of us. Many a time, and oft did this happen to Sir Isaac Newton, evidence is on record that such a deponent at eight o'clock a.m. found Sir Isaac with one stocking on, one off, at two, said deponent, called him to dinner. Being interrogated whether Sir Isaac had pulled on the minus stocking or gartered the plus stocking, witness replied that he had not. Being asked if Sir Isaac came to dinner, replied that he did not. Being again asked, quote, at sunset, did you look at Sir Isaac? Unquote. Witness replied, quote, I did, and now upon your conscience, sir, by the virtue of your oath, in what state were the stockings? End quote. Answer, quote, in statu quo antebellum. End quote. It seems Sir Isaac had fought through the whole battle of a long day, so trying a campaign to many people, he had traversed the whole sandy zara without calling, or needing to call, at one of those fountains, stages, or mansiones, footnote to follow, by which, note, according to our former explanation, providence has relieved the continuity of arid soil which else defigures that long dreary level. Footnote. Mansiones, the halts of the Roman legions, the stationary places of repose, which divided the marches, were so called. End footnote. This happens to all, but was dinner not dinner, and did supper become dinner, because Sir Isaac Newton ate nothing at the first, and threw the whole day's support upon the last? No, you will say, a rule is not defeated by one casual deviation, nor by one person's constant deviation. Everybody else was still dining at two, though Sir Isaac might not. And Sir Isaac himself, on most days, no more deferred his dinner beyond two than he sate with one stocking off. But what if everybody, Sir Isaac included, had deferred his substantial meal until night, and taken a slight refection only at two. The question put 
does really represent the very case which has happened with us in England. In 1700, a large part of London took a meal at 2 p.m., and another at 7 or 8 p.m. In 1839, a large part of London is still doing the very same thing, taking one meal at two, and another at seven or eight. But the names are entirely changed. The two o'clock meal used to be called dinner, and is now called luncheon. The eight o'clock meal used to be called supper, and is now called dinner. Now, the question is easily solved, because upon reviewing the idea of dinner, we should perceive that time has little or no connection with it, since, both in England and France, dinner has traveled, like the hand of a clock, through every hour between 10 a.m. and 10 p.m., we have a list, well attested, of every successive hour between these limits having been the known established hour for the royal dinner table within the last three hundred and fifty years. Time, therefore, vanishes from the equation. It is a quantity as regularly exterminated as any algebraic problem. The true elements of the idea are evidently these. 1. That dinner is that meal, no matter when taken, which is the principal meal, i.e., the meal on which the day's support is thrown. 2. That it is the meal of hospitality. 3. That it is the meal, note with reference to both numbers 1 and 2, in which animal food predominates. 4. That it is that meal which, upon necessity, arising from the abolition of all but one, would naturally offer itself as the one. Apply these four tests to prandium. How could that meal answer to the first test as the day's support, which few people touched? How could that meal answer to the second test as the meal of hospitality, at which nobody sate down? How could that meal answer to the third test as the meal of animal food, which consisted exclusively and notoriously of bread, or to the fourth test of the meal, entitled to survive the abolition of the rest, which was itself at all times in practice. Tried, therefore, by every test, prandium vanishes. But we have something further to communicate about the same prandium. 1. It came to pass, by a very natural association of feeling, that prandium and genticulum, in the latter centuries of Rome, were generally confounded. The result was inevitable. Both professed the same basis. Both came in the morning. Both were fictions. Hence they were confounded. The fact speaks for itself. Breakfast and luncheon never could have been confounded but who would be at the pains of distinguishing two shadows? In a gambling house of that class, where you are at liberty to sit down to a splendid banquet, anxiety probably prevents your sitting down at all. But, if you do, the same cause prevents your noticing what you eat. 
so of the two, pseudo, meals of Rome, they came in the very midst of the Roman business, viz., from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Nobody could give his mind to them, had they been of better quality. There lay one cause of their vagueness, viz., in their position. Another cause was the common basis of both. Bread was so notoriously the predominating, quote, feature in each of these prelusive banquets that all foreigners at Rome, who communicated with Romans through the Greek language, knew both the one and the other by the name of, note, Greek, artositos, or the bread repast. Originally, this name had been restricted to the earlier meal, but a distinction without a difference could not sustain itself, and both alike disguised their emptiness under this pompous quadrisyllable. In the identity of substance, therefore, lay a second ground of confusion. And, then, thirdly, even as the time, which had ever been the sole real distinction, there arose from accident a tendency to converge. For it happened that while some had gentoculum, but no prandium, others had prandium, but no gentoculum. A third party had both, a fourth party, by much the largest, had neither. Out of which varieties, note, who would think that a non-entity could be cut up into so many somethings? Arose a fifth party of compromisers, who, because they could not afford a regular coena, and yet were hospitably disposed, fused the two ideas into one, and so, because the usual time for the idea of a breakfast was nine to ten, and for the idea of a luncheon twelve to one, comprised the rival pretensions by what diplomists call a mezzo-termine, bisecting the time at eleven, and melting the two ideas into one. But, by this merging the separate times of each, they abolished the sole real difference that had ever divided them. Losing that, they lost all. Perhaps as two negatives make one affirmative, it may be thought that two layers of moonshine might coalesce into one pancake, and two barmecide banquets might compose one poached egg. Of that, the company were the best judges, but probably, as a rump and dozen in our land of wagers, is construed with a very liberal latitude as the materials, so Marshall's invitation, quote, to take bread with him at eleven, end quote, might be understood by the, note, Greek, sunetoi, as significant of something better than, note, Greek, artositos. Otherwise, in good truth, quote, moonshine and turn out, end quote, at eleven a.m. would be even worse than, quote, tea and turn out, end quote, at eight p.m., which the, quote, fervida juventus, end quote, of young England so loudly detests. But however that might be, in this convergement of the several frontiers, and the confusion that ensued 
one cannot wonder that, whilst the two bladders collapsed into one idea, they actually expanded into four names, two Latin and two Greek, Gustus and Gustadio. Note Greek, Gesus, and, note Greek, Gesuma, which all alike express the merely tentative or exploratory act of a pregustator, or professional, quote, taster. In a king's household, what if applied to a fluid we should denominate sipping? At last, by so many steps, all in one direction, things had come to such a pass. The two prelusive meals of the Roman morning, each for itself, separately vague from the beginning, had so communicated, and interfused their several and joint vagueness, that at last no man knew, or cared to know, what any other man included in his idea of either, how much or how little. And you might as well have hunted in the woods of Ethiopia for Prester John, or fixed the parish of the everlasting Jew, footnote to follow, as have attempted to say what, quote, gentoculum might be, or what, quote, prandium. Footnote, quote, the everlasting Jew, end quote, the German name for what we English call the wandering Jew. The German imagination has been most struck with the duration of the man's life, and his unhappy sanctity from death. The English, by the unrestingness of the man's life, his incapacity of repose, and footnote. Only one thing was clear, what they were not, neither was or wished to be anything that people cared for. They were both empty shadows, but shadows as they were, we find from Cicero that they had a power of polluting and profaning better things than themselves. We presume that no rational man will henceforth look for, quote, dinner, that great idea according to Dr. Johnson, that sacred idea according to Cicero, in a bag of moonshine on the side, or a bag of pollution on the other. Prandium, so far from being what our foolish dictionaries pretend, dinner itself, never in its palmiest days, was more or other than a miserable attempt at being luncheon. It was a conatus, what psychologists call a nissus, a struggling in a very ambitious spark, or scintilla, to kindle into fire. This nissus went on for some centuries, but finally issued in smoke. If Prandium had worked out his ambition, had, quote, the great stream of tendency, end quote, accomplished all his wishes, Prandium never could have been more than a very indifferent luncheon. But now, too, we have to offer another fact, ruinous to our dictionaries, on another ground. Various circumstances have disguised the truth, but a truth it is, that, quote, Prandium, in its very origin, in Cunabula, never was a meal known to the Roman, Culina. In that court, 
It was never recognized except as an alien. It had no original domicile in the city of Rome. It was a vat casfren cis, a word and an idea purely martial, and pointing to martial necessities amongst the new ideas proclaimed to the recruit. This was one, quote, look for no coenu, no regular dinner with us. Resign those unwarlike notions. It is true that even war has its respites. In these, it would be possible to have our Roman coena, with all its equipage of ministrations. Such luxury untunes the mind for doing and suffering. Let us voluntarily renounce it, that when a necessity of renouncing it arrives, we may not feel it among the hardships of war. From the day when you enter the gates of the camp, reconcile yourself, Tyro, to a new fashion of meal, to what in camp dialect we call prandium. Quote. This, quote, prandium, this essentially military meal, was taken standing by way of symbolizing the necessity of being always ready for the enemy. Hence, the posture in which it was taken at Rome, the very counterpole to the luxurious posture of dinner. A writer of the third century, a period from which the Romans naturally looked back upon everything connected with their own early habits, and with the same kind of interest as we extend to our Alfred, note, separated from us as Romulus from them by just a thousand years, in speaking of Prandium, says, quote, quod dictum est Perandium ab eo, quod militis ad bellum peret, end quote. Isidorus again says, quote, propria pud, viteris, prandium, vocatum, fuesse, onanem, militum, sibum, anti, pugnum, end quote, i.e., quote, that properly speaking, amongst our ancestors, every military meal taken before battle was termed prandium, end quote. According to Isidore, the proposition is reciprocating, viz., that as every prandium was a military meal, so every military meal was called prandium. But in fact, the reason of that is apparent. Whether in the camp or the city, the early Romans had probably but one meal a day. That is true of many a man amongst ourselves by choice. It is true also, to our knowledge, of some horse regiments in our service, and may be of all. This meal was called coena, or dinner in the city, prandium in camps. In the city it would always be tending to one fixed hour. In the camp innumerable accidents of war would make it very uncertain. On this account it would be an established rule to celebrate the daily meal at noon, if nothing hindered. Not that a later hour would not have been preferred had the choice been free, but it was better to have a certainty at a bad hour than by waiting for a better hour to make it an uncertainty. For it was a camp proverb, Francis Paratus. Armed with his daily meal, the soldier is ready for service. 
It was not, however, that all meals, as Isidore imagined, were indiscriminately called prandium, but that one sole meal of the day, by accidents of war, might and did revolve through all hours of the day. End of Section 15 Dinner, Real and Reputed, Part 2, Thomas de Quincey Recording by Robert Scott, June the 28th, 2007